and moving. Well, if you're visiting us and it's your first time, we have been working our way through a prophet. And we started off with Hosea, looking at the story, a rather uncomfortable story, I have to be honest. The prophet Hosea is a story of a prophet who marries a wife, who is adulterous, who is a harlot, who goes off and lives with other men, who is uh, sold into prostitution, who is purchased back by... um, by a loving husband, prophet Hosea, and God's redeeming love is never ending. God's nature is to pursue us, to love us, and to reach out for us. Then we looked at Joel, and of course Joel is that great message of, to Judah about God's judgment, about God's power, about God's coming. And yet in the middle of this there is hope. That there is always hope to turn our hearts towards God. And the ruin and the years that the locusts have eaten, those experiences that we see in our lives and understand that God can renew our lives, that God can make a difference in our lives and he can move in power. So we're going to uh, talk about Amos' mission this morning for a few minutes. If you really want to sum up Amos as you think about Amos, it's to do with failure. I don't know if you've ever failed or you've had to tell somebody bad news. Maybe they've applied for a job and they didn't get it and you were the person responsible for telling them the bad news. Maybe you have gone for an exam and you got the news that you have failed and you did not get the mark that you hoped for. I've had that experience. Not very often, but I truly have had that heart-rending moment when bad news was delivered to me that I had not succeeded, mainly when I was a young man at school. And we had tests. And I remember one test in a particular school. I was there, and it was the chemistry test. And I realized that there was something wrong as I sat down and looked at the paper and realized that I really had no idea about anything on the paper. I knew I was in trouble. I looked at this, it might as well have been Cantonese. And as I looked at it, I thought, what is going on? I have no understanding. I have no connection. Oh, no, 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 no. Anyway, I faked it to make it. And, and I sat there and I wrote and I wrote. And then the teacher, chemistry teacher, Mr. Kling, gone. Mr. Kling, as we used to call him, came in and in our form room would post all of the results. School was dangerous in the 70s. Posted on the wall, and I'd look at this, and so we'd all gather around, and he would post it, and I guess it wasn't photocopied back then, but it was like in alphabetical order. Anderson! Andrew Anderson. His parents went to alliteration. Andrew Anderson, 96%. Well done, Andrew. I hate you. <laughs> A, B. Baker, a lot of bakers in England. Baker, 61%. That's better. A, B, 
C. Collins. 7%. Now, to be fair to me, 7% was probably the result that I got the name of the subject correct, I dated the paper, and I know how to spell my name. And so, oh, the failure, oh, the pain, oh, looking at this. Thank you, Mr. Klingon. Kling. Thank you for doing this to me. Uh, made me study a bit harder. Probably study the right information would help. <laughs> Failure. Oh, it hurts. Being told bad news, it's difficult. Amos' mission is not one mission that any of us would like. He's going from Judah, he's going north, and he's going to tell them that they have utterly and completely failed. There is a not 7%, you have got a big zero. There is a big zero, there is a big F in red marker across That country saying that you have underperformed, you have failed, and God is not pleased with you, and God is going to judge you. What a cheery message. I'm not pleased with you. Now, economically, Israel was booming. Jeroboam II was a mighty warrior king. He was booming. It was the great days. Everybody was making money hand over fist. Well, not everybody. The poor were not making money. The oppressed were not making money. But the middle classes, they were booming. It was the nation to live in. Have you ever wondered what is the most successful, most perfect, most desirable country in the world to live in globally today, according to the research that I did? You, you wondered about that, don't you? Well, apparently, the greatest country where people have the most satisfaction, where, where justice where people enjoy, where entrepreneurial, where life is good, that is rated number one in the world. It's Switzerland. Number two, Canada. Oh, we're pretty good, aren't we? Number four, is England. Um, (laughs) Number four is the United Kingdom. I had to put that in. They are wonderful countries because of safety, because of education, because of health, because of the economy, because of the growth, because of all that is taking place. And of course, Japan is in there. And of course, uh, France, begrudgingly, because of their football team. Uh, Number three, Sweden is in there. Of course, Sweden is there. We love the Swedes. They gave us ABBA. It's fantastic. 
But this is a booming country that is seen as a place to live. And yet God says to them, I'm not pleased with you, Amos. And Amos, I want you to go and preach. And Amos, I want you to go and share. And Amos, I want you to go there. Now, I struggle with Hosea. It's just a bit strange story. Understand it. We have no, no understanding of Joel of who he was, but Amos. Now I like Amos. For those of you who are in business, for those of you who are marketplace leaders, for those of you who love, let me tell you about Amos. Amos, first of all, was, he calls him a shepherd. He lived 10 miles south from uh, Jerusalem. He lived in a small village, and there in that small village, in what was rolling hills, I guess not dissimilar to some of the areas around Kelowna when it's dry and barren in the, in the heat of the day, it has that feeling, and there he would be a shepherd, and also he cared for olive trees. The Hebrew word for shepherd is not the normal kind of bog standard shepherd. This is a leader of shepherds. This is an owner of shepherds. This is a businessman who has his own business, who has his own industry, who has employees around him, who has a a kind of middle class agricultural environment. He's 10 miles away from Jerusalem, far enough to keep out of the mad politics of Jerusalem, but near enough to get to the temple to be at all the festivals. So whatever is going on in this layman's life, who runs his own business, we don't even know whether he was a member of the school of prophets. He wasn't a normal prophet as there were. The normal prophets often would be with the kings and the politicians, and he would speak about wars and about this. This man learned to know God as a businessman leading people in a small community where he walked the dusty Uh, pathways, sat on the hilltops, and he sought the face of God, and Amos got to know God well. So I always wonder about Amos, that as he saw the economics of Judea, and he saw what was going on in Israel, as he saw his workers work, as he saw the values of the nation, as he traded in his olives, And attended his orchards. As he worked with his goats and sheep and organized his men. This marketplace leader. This professional. This middle class. Not part of the elite. But certainly part of the prosperous class. This man God got hold of and turned him into a great preacher, into a great prophet, and God used him. And God said to him, the first missionary, if you like, I'm going to send you from Judah, I'm going to send you to Bethel, and I want you to bring a message to them. Can you imagine he was sent off to travel north, take the journey to Bethel, load up his donkey, Probably a Mercedes donkey. And off he went. And he went north. 
And as he went north, you know, they waved him goodbye. What are you going to do? I'm going to preach in Bethel. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell them? Well, you know, I've got a message for them. Now, the first two chapters of Amos are awesome for the, for the Israelites. He would have got to Bethel. He would have started preaching. He was preaching the first two chapters. Woe to you, Tyre. Woe to you, Damascus, woe to you, all the nations around Israel. He slammed them. He preached it. He said, judgment is going to come. God's going to come. And you can imagine them listening to his first group of sermons. And they're going, high five, Israel. Yay. We have looked at God's going to obliterate all our neighbors. This is amazing. Preach it, brother. Preach it, brother. Preach it. They were very American. They were loving it. Oh. This, bring this young preacher on. Where are you from? You're a marketplace leader. Wow. You've got anointing. You're amazing. Preach it. High five, America. That's what they do. And then Amos says, actually, I've got a message for you. And you failed. Four areas. You have failed... In your worship, because your worship is not true, it is not honest, it is performance-based, and it is driven. You see, Amos questioned the view of Israel's sacred, untouchable, and indestructible status. He looked at them and he knew that there was an arrogance about them. There was a strength about them, but there was a sense that we have made it. We have done it. And God looks at them and says, I see your worship. Your worship is fake. I see your values and your priorities. Your values and priorities are completely wrong. I see your holiness and that you are not living as a holy people. And I see the way you care for the weak. And you oppress them. And I can't stand the way that you oppress the weak. And Amos's heart is saying to them, you think that you are the best, that you are awesome, that you, because you are linked to Abraham, you are amazing, and that nothing bad can happen to you. But yes, I did choose you from the families of the earth, but therefore, because of your heart, I will punish your sin. The thing I love about Amos, is that he really believed in his writings just this sense that God can transform a heart. That God can transform a life. That he can come and move. And he was a prayer warrior. He was intercessor. In the middle of the chapters, he's praying. He's seeing visions. He's praying for the nation. It's not even his nation, but he's believing God for breakthrough. He's contending like Moses contended for the nation of Israel on the mountain. He's praying for God's mercy. He's praying for God's strength. He's praying that this self-contained, self-righteous, arrogant, little superpower that has rejected God will turn their hearts to Yahweh once again. There's a danger in culture that we become so self-reliant 
that we take God out of the equation. He was a prayer warrior. He says, I'm going to Bethel. You know the story of Bethel. Bethel is the place where Jacob met God. Bethel is that place where he went and he laid his head down and God gave him a dream and heaven and earth touched. Bethel is that place where the angels came with the stairway. And there's a defining moment in the life of the great patriarch. That God and heaven, earth and heaven met and God was present. And yet, in Bethel today, there was a temple there. But that temple was full of worshipping of synchronistic worship of the gods of war, the gods of weather, the gods of sex. Synchronistic worship, sometimes it was all messed up. And there is a battle in our heart as people. Between the simplicity of us living our lives to touch heaven itself and to climb that ladder. Or to live and to climb another ladder only to find that you've climbed up the wrong ladder. Only to discover that Israel's arrogance, even when they gave their money, it says they gave it out of a sense of pride, their tithe, their three-year tithe, because of the way that people looked at them. They gave out of, out of performance, out of the way they acted. The theology was weak. The nation was strong. The army was good. The people were voting for the king. The king was tweeting out and telling the world how awesome it is. And God looks at this and says, your values are all wrong. Look at your economics. I hate your economics. Look at your palaces you're building. Look at your scales in the marketplace. When the poor come to get their grain, you have weighed the scales against them. You are becoming rich with insider trading. You are becoming wealthy by oppressing the poor. You are treating people. Look at the rents, it says. Look at the houses and the palaces that you're building. I hate your palaces. I hate the way that you're doing it, God says. So you can see why when the priest at Bethel heard him preach, there's a little bit there that talks about, kick this guy out of town. I'm going to tell the king, we're going to get rid of you. Who do you think you are, you Judean? You olive farmer? You shepherd? Get out of town. I'm going to bring the king. But God says, look at you where you are. Look at the rents you charge so the poor are being exploited. Look at what you're doing with the small peasants and their farming and the, and the kind of cartels you are building. I hate the way that you are. So let's think about how they were. Amos questioned their in untouchable, indestructible status. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. He questioned them. 
There was a spiritual arrogance about them because of they were from Father Abraham. And they thought because they were family, therefore God wouldn't judge them. But you know what? God doesn't have grandchildren. Your relationship, their relationship, it's about today. What is your relationship with God like right now? He probes the true nature of their worship. Whether they're genuine turning to God or something different. Probes that. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgo and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifice every morning. Your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread and thank offerings. And brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. For this is what you love to do. You love to boast. You love to brag. You love to say how amazing you are. Look how generous I am. Look what I do. Everybody applaud me. Because we're amazing when we give. And God sees this and sees that there is no humility No honesty, no openness. (laughs) He draws attention to the wealthy in the land and their violence and their injustice. God sees their behavior unacceptable. He says, I hate this. I hate the way that you are. I hate the way that you are a failed state. Any country that loses its courts, any country that loses uh, control, where the judicial system is against the poor, against the needy, exploits that when always the wealthy go to court and they always win. And God sees this injustice and God hates it. It's a failed state. Yes, it's the best place to live. Yes, they are economically booming. Yes, it is going amazingly well for them. But their worship is nothing. And their values are all wrong. And their personal holiness does not exist. And their care for the weak, they oppress and they rob the weak. They do not care for the weak. So God's heart is that he sees these areas. See, there's an interesting thing that when your worship of God is genuine, deep, and it's a relationship with God, it affects your values, your integrity, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you speak. It therefore affects your personal holiness that you take sin seriously because you most want to be with Christ and you want to be so close to him. And then what happens, naturally out of your intimacy for Christ, you become concerned for the weak and the poor and the broken and you want to serve people and the weak people around you and the people that God connects you with who are less fortunate that you can so easily stereotype and put into a corner. God wants to come and set us free. We are all recovering Pharisees. Well, I am. 
You're probably not. I'm a Sadducee, you might say. We're all Pharisees. Or at least, I'm a recovering Pharisee. I need a group to go to. I need to sit there. My name is Phil Collins and I am a Pharisee. Because there's a battle within me between position and ego. There's a battle within us between what we love and sparkles. There's a battle within us of inner holiness. And we always have to be aware that we have all fallen and we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's keep our worship pure. Let's keep our values correct. Let's take our personal transformation and own it. And out of that comes the most beautiful fruit that the weak around us we care for. So he draws attention. He draws attention to the way that you, you levy a straw tax on the poor. I mean, what is a straw tax? I don't know. I've never heard of one. I don't pay a straw tax. Maybe in Saskatchewan. And they impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush, lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Hate evil, love good. That's a battle in our culture. It's a battle to hate evil and to love good. We look at our lives. When we repent, we back up away from the things that Jesus hates and we go towards the things that Jesus loves. It's beautiful. Transforms our lives. He attempts to destroy the upper classes' trust in their wealth, their pride in their military, their achievements, their security, and their grand homes. He gets a bit rude, Amos does, about the middle class women. If you've read it, this is in the Bible. <laughs> he calls them cows. Not very nice, is it? I should be careful at this moment, I know. He says, you are a bunch of women who are your cows. Look at you. Look at you, cows. You lie on your beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatty calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical. They're very trendy, aren't they? They improvise on musical instruments. They're, a, they're, they're playing jazz. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. Clinique. But you, it's the only one I know, but, because Michelle used it. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. See what the Lord's doing. The Lord is saying to them, you think you're awesome and untouchable, but you're not. Your worship and your connection with me is superficial and fake. 
your care for the poor and the weak around you, you have no, in fact, you exploit them. And you love your bank accounts and your fine houses and all that you have and your, all that stuff. More than you love me. And I want you to stop trusting in these things. And I want you to start trusting in me. There is a glimmer of hope. He reminds everyone that the coming destruction of the nations of Israel does not mean that God's covenant promise will never be fulfilled. There's that view ahead that even though the reaper comes, he will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter and new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And that new wine came in the form of a baby in a manger. That new wine came in the form of the lion of the tribe of Judah. That new wine came as God's presence from heaven itself came to this earth to win back all the nations, to bring hope, to bring the right values, to bring a true heart of worship in spirit and in truth, that our values would be the values of the kingdom of God, that we would be a praying people, that we would be a seeking people, that we would look more like Amos in our walk than like Israel, that first things first, I want to put God first. So to finish off, he um, promises this. I guess we all have to look at this and see what his real theological message is. And I kind of boiled it down to a, a number of C's first of all. His first one is wake up and work out who's in charge. That's really the message. I'm in charge of the nations. I'm in charge of your nations. I'm in charge of the globe. I am the sovereign Lord. And wake up, Israel, because you're doing very fine. You're the best place to live in the world. But I am the one that is in charge. Secondly... I want you to be conformed to my nature. I want you to look like me. I want you to reflect my heart. I want you to be like me. I want you to be conformed to me. Thirdly, I want you to be reminded that it is through the crying of the heart, crying, and prayer and that intercession that changes things. It is your closeness. It is your seeking of God. It is your walking with the Lord. It is bringing those days when he was on those mountaintops. But you're bankrupt. And finally there. I want you to realize the cost of not living this way. Because the cost is judgment. He, Amos, is brilliant at taking culture 
the current culture of Israel and using it in his writing. It's very up close and personal. He looks at, he's not using grandioso terms and, and, and great pictures like Joel, you know, locusts and darkness and armies. He's talking about towns and places and peoples and attitudes and values. He's talking about politics. He's talking about the nation. He's a He's a prophet that looks at culture and says, I can communicate to you effectively. And this is the message. The church and Willow Park must not ever stop trying to strive towards being culturally relevant in terms of our communication. But not watering down the message of the word of God. Because he was contemporary in his communication. All the theologians write about this. He was direct. And we have to look and communicate the gospel message to this world, to this culture, in a way that the unbelievers and those seeking and those that are on the edge can engage in a beautiful, redeeming relationship with Jesus. That's what comes from Hosea. He wasn't scared to talk about culture. You look at our own culture. You look at what we're legalizing and what we're talking about. We look at about legalization of marijuana, the education of children, the way that we are approaching our society, the values that we're, we're, we're bringing in. There's, really? We're doing it in, in the Western world. We are doing the biggest social experiment because we feel it's right when all the science says it is wrong. When all the science tells me that there are areas that are wrong in our culture. But you see, Hosea was an intercessor that saw the wrong areas. You know, if a woman gets attacked, they're told, don't cry, help, help, help. Because people will ignore you when you cry help. If you get attacked, cry fire. And then a man might run to your rescue. Wow. Wow. That's what they teach in the States and in different cities. Okay, but culture has gone so far that we care so much about ourselves that even when we hear a scream, we walk the opposite direction and don't walk towards it. There was a big cultural research piece in the States And the question was asked at one point, do you believe in absolute truth? Now we, if you don't know that, as Christians, we believe in the truth and the absolute truth of the integrity of the nature and the truth of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Out of those that were polled in church life and beyond... 59% of those who said they were born again Christians said that they did not believe in absolute truth. As opposed to the 81% of non-church attenders. That tells me we've got a problem. 
It tells me we have to look at culture. It tells me that we've got shifting sands going on. It tells me that Hosea's critique of culture is a critique that we need to be a work through. But the greatest critique we can do of culture is to stand on the mountaintops of South Judah and learn to be a people who pray, who intercede, that travail, that cry out for our nations and believe that God in these last days can visit and move and work. The battle will be won in prayer. The battle is won in the spirit. The practical things Hosea teaches us. Teaches us. So as a church today, contemporary, we have to be on our communication game. As a church today, we need to understand culture, pray for culture, engage in culture, identify dangers in culture that hurt the poor and the needy. Who is going to get hurt the most with some of these policies? Then we have to build community. Because when there's a broken nation, broken people look for a loving people, a caring people, a people that, that can, can, can connect. We still run the Hope Center every Thursday, not through the summer because we have these massive renovations, painting the church, new kitchen. It's awesome. But there are groups of people that tell us again and again, This is our only time we get out of the house and sit with other people once a week on a Thursday. When a church hears the prophetic cry, the church's response is to pray and the church's response is to build community. Include people, engage with people, invite people. Build your small group. Get involved. Because the very nature of building community within community and reaching out to the poor and the broken and those that are weak around us is God's heart for his church. So we guess the final word is contend. I suppose I want to stop talking and preaching about The hundred-year prayer meeting that brought the great revivals of the Wesleys, and I want to be in a hundred-year prayer meeting. I guess Hosea teaches me that I don't have to be a professional priest or prophet, but God can call you and I with our olive businesses and our professions to make a difference in little ways and in big ways in our world. God isn't finished with us. We can still make a difference. And Hosea, you can tell I like uh, Amos. Hosea, oh, go. Uh, Amos, love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And I think that's the end. <laughs> I think you got the message. Let's stand together.
Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this service, help us to take the next step in our lives. Help us, Lord, to ask ourselves the question, how is my my worship? my intimacy? How am I walking with you? Lord, help us to identify where there are worldly values of this world that are polluting our lives, that we've taken on rather than values of the kingdom of God. And help us to see those values. And give me the courage, Lord, that when I see a value that is worldly, that I will have the courage to repent, to do some prayer, to do some journaling, to do some deep confession, to change my value base and become the man or the woman of God that you're calling us to be. And I know as I do that, my personal holiness will be transformed. My personal walk. And when I love God with all my heart, as you said, the greatest commandment, I will then love my neighbor. I will then love my neighbor. And I pray that I'll learn to love God first. And out of that will flow a love for my neighbor in Jesus' name. Thank you for the cry of the prophet Amos. And may fear not hold us back. May freedom drive us forward like a river in Jesus' name. Amen.